Welcome to Cover Stories with Chess Life, the U.S. Chess Federation's podcast that goes behind the scenes and more in-depth about each month's Chess Life magazine cover story. Make sure to listen to our family of U.S. Chess podcasts, which includes One Move at a Time on the second Tuesday of each month, where Dan Lucas talks to people who are advancing our mission statement, Ladies' Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month, hosted by our women's program director, Jennifer Shahadi, and on the fourth Tuesday of each month, Chess Underground, hosted by our assistant director of national events, Pete Cargianis, in which he examines the game's eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. All can be found at the podcast link on Chess Life Online at uschess.org, or you can subscribe via iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Today's guest on Cover Stories with Chess Life is well-known to American chess fans. He's the man with a fancy hat, Grandmaster Elshan Maradi Abadi. Elshan is the author of our April cover story on the Tata Steel Tournament earlier this year, won by Magnus Carlsen. Um, instead of a traditional blow-by-blow account, Elshan's analysis focused on the most interesting and instructive moments of the event, although one of the most instructive may be found in a future issue of Chess Life. Born in Tehran, Iran, Elshan moved to the U.S. in 2012 to attend college at Texas Tech and play on their chess team. He won the 2017 U.S. Grand Prix, uh, U.S. Chess Grand Prix, the 2016 Washington International, and the Rilton Cup in Stockholm, Sweden in 2020. His most recent tournament was the 2022 Spring Classic at the St. Louis Chess Club, where he finished with an even score in the B group. A coach and author, Elshan has worked with American juniors both privately and at international events. And last year, he published Sherlock's Method, the working tool for the club player, co-written with WGM Sabina Foyser. Today, we talked to Elshan from his home in Durham, North Carolina, where he is taking time out of a busy day of teaching to speak to us. Hello, Elshan. How are you doing? Hi, John. I'm doing fine. I'm, uh, I'm glad to be here. And uh, I hope like, we can come up with something very good and interesting and instructive for everyone to listen to and learn from. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Brilliant. All right. Well, let's talk about the cover story. Let's talk about um, Vikanze, Tata Steel. Um, so there are a lot of ways we could have gone with this cover story. But uh, when I was talking to you, you, you told me that you had been working on some of the games from Tata Steel. Uh, and, and the fruits of some of that we find in the magazine. Were you working on those for, for personal study, for teaching use? Why were you going through them so thoroughly? Well, there are three aspects to it. When I look at uh, the current tournaments, ongoing tournaments, John. So there, the three aspects are like, I have students are different level and, uh, Although you can refer to them, go get by this book, read that book, or some some something like this, you still want to sometimes come up with something new for them. When they come to the class, they, they look for novelty. And although there is there's ample amount of material out there, and let's be honest about that, there, there is a lot of material, good material out there. There are all kinds. There are classics, there are average ones, there are junk ones, and there are fantastic ones. There are all kinds of material out there. But although they're there, uh, they still want the novelty. They want to come to the class and say, okay, what do people do these days? What do these top guys are doing these days? So, 
at different levels, you need to quench that needs, the, the, the thirst to understand the truth of modern chess. Oh, but also, you cannot show them all parts. I cannot show 35 moves of, I don't know how many moves they made, for example, today between Wesley So and, uh, and, uh, and Hikaru Nakamura. The game is, the entire thing is theory. Like they, they just don't play anything out of knowledge. Everything is knowledge. So I cannot show that to a 1500, right? So I have to draw different levels of uh, knowledge for different levels of players. So that's one part. Uh, we need novelty for different levels. So that's one thing. The other aspect is that I still think of, of myself as someone who loves chess and I work with strong players as well. So openings, you know, ideas, what do people do, how they approach it, what things they look into. So that's number two. And the third one is that uh, you always want to see how chess techniques perpetuate themselves. Like, for example, one thing you've seen people have done in 1950s and 70s, and it seemed like a done deal in the Fisher's time. We see that people want to do it nowadays and it just cannot be done the same way because we know we have better defensive tools in chess because you are more aware of, you know, because of the engine analysis, we know more. We know there are more into it than just, oh, and worse. No, there could be defense there. There could be practical things to do, to consider. So uh, I think these are uh, the three aspects, I can say, why I continuously look at the modernists. Now, I'm a one-man army, and unfortunately, I don't have all the time in the world to just go as thoroughly as I want. But as much as my time lets, I'll do that. Looking back, um, was was there anything surprised that, that surprised you about the event? Were there were there any performances that that sort of stood out to you from from Tata Steel? Um, surprises. I was surprised actually by Carolina having all Black wins all of the games in his decisive games. That was the most surprising thing for me. So why why is that so surprising? Well, I mean, Carolina is known for his opening prep, and uh, as White, he's a he's a killer, really. Most I mean, with White, he probably has even he amasses even a bigger more. Impressive score than Magnus in, at his best. I mean, at least in between, I would say 16 to 2020, which where I have a better memory because after 2020 we had the COVID and because things got a little bit vague in my head. But at least in that period, I think are at least equally impressive, if not not better. I, I, I want to say. And losing three games with White and winning with Black, all, all of the wins he scored in the tournament, that was a little bit. Uh, that was an interesting oddity. I wouldn't say impressive, but it was a it was an interesting oddity to observe that he was overpressing with. With white, maybe that was the. Other than that, um, yeah, Mamad Yarov and the uh, Rapport played well, and uh, others had their moments, good and bad. So I think there, it was fairly a very interesting event in that sense. But expected, maybe. Okay. Um, one of the things you've been working on for a little while for something for Chess Life uh, in the future is the the telling the story or the backstory, I guess of. Jordan Van Forst's win over in Ishkiri. Yep. Um, so why why are you so interested in that particular game? What and to give a little preview of, of what our listeners might find in a future issue of Chess Life. Yeah. Well, I actually because of that game, I have now a collection of thirty games, a list of thirty games. I would, okay, maybe it's twenty something. Anyways, around that number uh, that uh, tells the history of that opponent structure because. As a kid, you know, when I was looking at these uh, positions, we, will, we would always start with the question. Nowadays, everybody wants to know the theory first, the moves, the tactics, and then they ask the questions. Because when I was a kid, when I started, there was no engine. The, the knowledge was scarce out there. 
So we would start asking questions. Like the first thing was was uh, was that why after Bishop before in Nimzo, Black is obviously fighting for Reform Square and he wants to demolish my structure. Why do I voluntarily invite him to do that? Why do I lose a tempo asking him to do what he was about to do? Hmm. So then it started there. So at first I was. Uh, do we have enough time to, uh, start to tell the whole story here or no? Well, we don't want to give away everything, but a brief version. Yeah, a brief version. Well, I'm saying that the story is that so I, the first is that I was so biased toward Black because he gets what he wants. So I was working hard with my, with my training partners that I want to prove that Black is better here. You know, and it was all about truth. I want to prove Black is better. So we spent more time than I saw some of the classics that actually, you know, what starts getting the center, two bishops. Oh, fantastic. Then I turned tight. I learned about two bishops. I was back. Like, no, white is good. So we are being principled. We go A3. We just say, I want your two bishops. I want to prove I can get the center. So back and forth over the years, uh, uh, it was, you know, when you're young, you have very strong beliefs, right? The older you get, you, you start having, you know what? There's this gray area that you have to consider. So, so I built this history of, of, knowing things so back in here there's the scheme and then there's this one and then we go all the way to uh to the match on against carlson 2013 and now we have 2020 uh 2022 fan forest against uh, giri which actually turned out to be an important game because giri was half a point behind carlson with that loss it just kind of got derailed and carlson just uh, took off after that or it was, uh, I don't know, it was one point behind. I don't know exactly remember, but it was a critical moment because he just, then, then just, he, uh, Carlson just simply took off. The tone was almost decided to do that. So um, that's why I think when you tell a story to, to, to the kids and where it comes from, you tell them moves, you tell them engine says so, they accept it, but there is a deeper understanding of it. When they, when, once you play, you want to be aware of it when you play. And I see a lot of time kids know the move, but they are not, or not only kids, it's my students in general, but they are not confident enough because they don't know why, but they don't know how to ask that question. So I want, by showing them in one example, this one, for example, particular one we're talking about now, then they know how to ask the question because it always comes down to the right question that what the position posits, what does it posit? And uh, what does it suggest to happen? And uh, then, from there, you know, then whenever, whenever they see a position, they can be, be their own fisher. You know, I mean, I, we have this saying, I think we all have in English. So learn how to fish, not to, not just being fed fish. So teach right. them how to fish. So that's the, that's the, that's the idea. Right. If they can ask the right question, then not only this position, everywhere they can go and, you know, be their own fisher. I am excited to see this. I think, um, I, I think the readers... Uh, should look forward to uh, an upcoming issue of Chess Life where we're we're going to see the fruits of your labor. Uh, and again, that that game is the Van Forest uh, Geary game from Vikanze. If you want to look it up and uh, begin to do your homework and maybe compare your notes with Elshan, um, th- this kind of gets us to the first thing I wanted to talk about with you because you know I've I've gotten to know you a little bit over the years, and um, I'm always I'm always really interested to hear about how you learn chess because you know, you grew up in Iran. Um, and you know, as, as one of the, the top young players there at a time when maybe there wasn't, uh, that many, you know, uh, juniors who were, who were shining like, like today, I mean, you know, today there's so many kids everywhere who, because of the internet and things like that, they, they get really good, really quick, but, but you did it before that. 
and and part of that is you had access to trainers and to tournaments that that I suspect gave you a very different perspective on chess than maybe modern players learning with with chess base and engines have today. So so talk a little bit about that. What was it like to be you know to be like a twelve year old top player in Tehran and 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 who were some of the coaches you got to work with? All right, so I'm going to give you a very quick uh, idea of how things panned out uh, uh, at the time. So I learned chess watching my dad playing with our neighbor. So there was no scholastic program. There was no chess in school. Chess was banned just a few years before. People were going to tournaments still. Uh, everybody was worried that what if some hardliner from, I don't know, from IRGC or someone shows up and just shut down the tournament. Just, you know, they put, they, they take off the rifle and just say, everybody out of the building. They were worried. I'm telling you, I was, I was 11 and people still were worried. We would be at the chess federation training Chess Federation, official building. And we were still worried that some hardliner can show up and shut it down. So we're not that worried. I mean, you're also a kid. But the, the thing is that the, the worry was there. Like, for example, don't talk too too loud or something. Or, I mean, don't. Okay, that thing is gone now. But uh, it was the thing. Chess was banned for 10 years in Iran. Uh, and, uh, again, we we when you say, like, young and upcoming player, the thing is, I think I was one of the few people who were in love with chess. Because when you go to a tournament, as I as, as we, we had covered in the story for the Spring Classics, I, I played in that tournament. There were like five under 20 players, all out of 255 players. Real, real quick. So the story you're talking about is on Chess Life Online. And we'll, we'll put a link to it in the show notes for this. But um, yeah, in, you, were, you were talking about the difference between being that 12-year-old in Tehran yep. playing in, in a big tournament and, and what it was like to sort of come full circle and be the, the grizzled yeah. the grizzled veteran in, in the spring class. Um, yeah. yeah, readers should definitely check that out. It's a great story. But okay, so back to this. So so you're that, you're that kid. So I'm that kid who loves the game. So he, who shows up. There are rapid tournaments. Ashan shows up. So I'm the only kid, actually. Not the, so I'm like, the, there are like five kids playing in like 200 players. So I, I keep I keep showing up. I tell my, my dad. So I think my persistence and consistency, then you know you show up everywhere and the coaches see you. So I first trained with the uh, with national champion, 2023, close to Fidel Master level, Fidel Master level. Then um, uh, I worked with the uh, when I got to the national team, the uh, the junior national team. We had because they called it national team because if you are making it to the top, then you are in the national form of national team. So junior national teams or or cadet national team, however you want to put it. Then uh, I was working with IM Hosro Harandi, who was one of the first IMs before the, he became an IM before the revolution. He played with candidates, said not candidates, uh, interzonal, and uh, he had a chance to play against Spassky and all these names when he was throwing that he played against Spassky or Ifkov or uh, or Meking. I was like, wow, like he played against Trojan, so. Uh, it was like uh, legendary to us. Like I mean, he, this guy has met; he has shaken hands with Petrosian or or, or, or Spassky. So there was nothing like this. Is it? He, he was God. And then Federation got someone who had money and power, and he just happened to love chess. So things took off. Uh, then we had Alexei Kuzmin coming from Qatar. He was training Almadi for a long time. Uh, he, he had a one-week camp, and then after that, we had Igor Zaisev. Then things took off. Then I had exposure to actually what it looks like out there. There, there was there was one annotation you did for us. Um, 
where you talked about how Zaitsev had shown you this pawn structure years and years ago. And and it came up, and I, I can't recall if it was one of your games or if it was a game you were annotating. I think it's in this one uh, against Mishra when I was talking, or no? No, 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 it wasn't. No, this was this was a couple of issues ago. Um, I, I'd have to go back and look. Maybe, maybe yeah, some I, I remember I talked about this. Yeah, yeah, I remember. I don't. Uh, I don't remember. That's okay. Uh, the, the reason I bring it up is that it it feels to me like that's the sort of example of the kind of thing you were just talking about. That that this sort of classic education you had where you know you were shown the classics and and re- and really brought up on them um yeah and then you had to ask the question like you know, right and that's the thing is that you you learn to ask questions on the basis of that yeah he gave me a line sorry to interrupt you just quickly yeah so th- th- this was the point he he was giving me his analysis and this is like great zeitsef right he was working on carpox team and i would go back and people would just take it on, on the face value but like, this is it zeitsef said so and I was like, it's not how it works. What if, what if this? And at first you are shy as a 12-year-old kid to ask, but then you ask the question and he was happy. I saw his eyes were like, uh, I said glowing. I don't know that's what's the right word. He was just, uh, he was shining. Yeah, he was yeah, like, yeah. so happy to see that I'm asking a question actually. And I thought, oh, wait a second. Actually, this is a good thing. You don't take it as, as the face value. You go and come back and ask a question. And, uh, that was it. Then I learned the art of uh, the, the value of analyzing a game. So it's it's always fun to just go through. Even nowadays, I sit there, I can spend hours. You just give me a pot of coffee and I sit there and I spend 10 hours analyzing a, a position. Yeah. It's um although, although not younger young players, top young players, they beat me. I don't have the energy anymore. But I can sit there for many, I can sit there for many hours. The one part is that the engine just reveals too much, and then you just get tired of it. I'm, I'm- because at the time, discovering the truth was just like the, the the whole fun of it. But then nowadays, the truth is before you. You just have to get deeper in it. We're going to come back to this when we talk about your coaching and and how it works <clears throat> with with today's sort of engine driven players. Um, but so you got to work with Zaitsev. You got to, but you also you got to work with Nigel Short for a while. Isn't that right? And that's after I became a GM. Okay, that's that's two thousand six. So. And Short was a great, we didn't, I would say Short didn't train me. Mostly he coached me and he did a fantastic job. How so? Well, he has, uh, uh, I mean, his recent book is winning, right? And he wrote his, and he's not writing, writing the second uh, uh, second uh, book on it uh, and his tournaments. So he has a massive tournament experience, opens and rapid and uh, world championship match and everything. Like he's the, he's the, Bible of the chess tournament. And he has won all kinds. He's won candidates. He's won, uh, he's won round robins. He's won suicides, you know. So all kinds of tournaments, when it, it came to, he, he had always something to say that, oh, okay, we have to approach this tournament, this opponent, this way. And I would say 90%, 95% of the time, and that's a very big number I'm saying, but it, he was right about the approach. Maybe we didn't prep well, but he was his approach was right. Interesting. And uh, this was mass. I was like, how can this guy be so? But he had this feeling. I think years of experience, talent. And he's a very talented guy. Uh, and, and he was very confident and he was not hubris. He, he was confident. He, he knew what he's talking about. And it was, it, was, it was great for me. Because I learned that, you know what? You're not only playing the board. Because I was like that. At the time, I was amassing knowledge. And I was trying to out, outplay my opponent by having more knowledge. That was my approach to chess. 
and he taught me that you are playing the opponent too. It's a sport. That was that was big for me. So so you worked with Short after you became a grandmaster in 2006, and you're you know you're playing um, internationally for Iran, um, and then in 2012, I think you decided to come to Lubbock, Texas and attend Texas Tech. How did that happen? Well, it is, it is a funny story. Uh, credit goes to Jennifer Shade, who uh, actually remembered me. So, um, you know, it's, it's a bit of a, a personal story too. After 2008, when I graduated college, I was hit by sort of a depression because most of my students left, most of my classmates left for, for, for the US. To, to pursue, I went to a very good college in Iran, Sharif University. Most graduates leave the country coming to the US or Canada or some other developed countries and, and further study master's PhDs, getting good jobs and live on. And uh, all of a sudden I, I realized that not all of my friends are gone. So that was very depressing for me. So in 2008, uh, I, played, uh, I played in, uh, in China in a uh, it was a world team event and the U.S. had a team and uh, Jennifer was playing there as well. And we met and talked and I said that, yeah, this is just randomly just happened. Just this is it. And uh, she said, give me your email. And I just didn't. I just wrote my email on a piece of paper, really. And I, but thanks to her, she, she, she got back to me a year after. And she told me there is a possibility if you want to pursue a master's degree. There's one of the, one of the, uh, Scholarship schools, Texas Tech, actually has an engineering program, and you can actually pursue master because I, I I've done engineering undergrad, chemical engineering. So I I was looking for a place that I could pursue masters in chemical engineering, and uh, that was it. I applied, but okay, things changed a lot after that. But that, that was the beginning, and that's how I ended up being in Lubbock, Texas. I wrote to the person in charge at the time, and then things. Then I was put in touch with the coach, and things things took off from there. Now, but thanks for again. I mean, I, w- I want to say that thank you because it, I, read, I read, literally wrote it on a piece of paper, and I didn't expect her to get back to me. And he wrote me back like in eight, seven, eight months later. Wow. Yeah, and he changed my life. Yeah, you had been all over the world at that point. I mean, you had you know you had traveled to tournaments internationally, and and what was it like to suddenly be in Lubbock? I mean, was it was there a culture shock? Was there massive? I was living in Tehran with 13 million population, and suddenly I'm moving to Lubbock, Texas. That was a big cultural shock. Wow, that was I, I cannot even explain it. It was it was massive. What, what what do you remember most from those first days? Was there anything that, looking back, still sort of sticks out to you? It was it was very hard. Not people are nice. Life is fine. Okay, I mean. Okay, you you have a drop in quality of your life. I'm living in a above average, I would say luxurious, but a very good neighborhood in a very nice newly built apartment in Tehran, and I have my own things going on. Okay, I have to share it with my parents, but still, I had my own things going on and everything, and had my freedom. My income was way above average in Iran that could pay for a very fun life, and now I'm suddenly having this drop in the life quality quality of life, as well as living in a very different environment. So I really have vague memories for the first few years because it was very hard and it was mostly psychological, I think. Yeah. It wasn't that like people are not nice or something, the environment is harsh. No, it was just 
so different. Yeah. And I feel like I'm thrown into this whole new universe to me. But uh, every night I had some activities going on in Tehran, and now I don't have anything going on in Lagos. Really. Yeah, it's and and you go to a couple of activities, and everything else seems to, about the same to you. Whereas in Tehran, despite the very uh, despotic controlling regime, there's still a lot, ton of things to do. It's 30 million people, right? You find something to do. Yeah, the, I mean, you know, I've I grew up in New York, and I, you know, before I went to college, uh, before I went to grad school, um, I had never. I don't think I'd have been any further west than Pennsylvania. And I remember thinking how strange it was to go from New York to Southern Illinois, where I, where I did, was working on my PhD. But that must have been like nothing. I mean, like I, I, remember, I remember feeling the culture shock. Yeah. But it was, but I mean, you know, it was a thousand miles, whereas you're going halfway around the world. I, I, I can't even, I can't even fathom it. Yeah, it was, it was very, it was very, like in Tehran, you don't drive really. You basically Uber from, but I mean, they have their own thing called Snap. So you, you just get attacked because it doesn't worth it because the gas and everything just, you'll be on the road for two hours. You'd rather just sit back and pay for the, for someone to, to drive rather than, or, or someone who knows around the city to, to they can find all these tricks because the, the, the map doesn't really work. <laughs> the, the ways, because they have to know their ways through these small alleys and stuff to kind of get you to places. So, uh, yeah, you have to have a car. I could, just couldn't come up with the idea of driving because when I, when I was thinking about driving, now I drive, but when I was thinking about driving, I was thinking about driving in Tehran and how it was difficult for me psychologically. So now I see driving here is like a piece of cake, really. Yeah. I, I love it. It was, I, I just was, but the idea of driving was still, I'm driving in Tehran, imagine driving in New York and every day, like for many hours. So it took me years to come up with this to overcome the psychological bar- barrier. I would say that uh, you know it's it's okay. I can drive it. It's different. So you, you you competed for Texas Tech. You you worked on your masters, um, and then after that, you you basically became a, a professional chess player and coach here in America. Yeah, uh, to be perfectly honest, I mean I failed to get my PhD. The plan was to get a PhD and not become a professional in chess, but it was I think not getting a PhD was actually a What's the right word for it? I, mean, I don't. I didn't do that, but it actually was a like a good curse. I don't know how to put it back to it. Like a, a blessing in disguise. Blessing in disguise. Yes, that's what I was. Yeah. Yeah, I um, I, I think this is also why we understand each other so well. Uh, because you know, I I didn't finish my PhD either, and uh, it it um, you know, it certainly uh, I I think it would have been nice if I did, but um, I'm I'm content with the way things have turned out. So. Well, me, but this is something I can do well, and I feel good about it. And every day I wake up, I just enjoy doing chess. Yeah, exactly. So, so what is it like to be? I mean, l- l- let's talk about the playing first, um, because you've had some pretty notable successes. Um, I mean, you you know you you won the Grand Prix tour in, for that year. What was it 20, uh, 2017, Which I mean, basically means you have to play a lot and you have to win a lot. Um, you know, you've won big tournaments. You've you've played in the U.S. Championship. Um, what what really? Looking back now, what sticks out to you from those years? What 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 do you, what do you feel like the most important tournaments were? Uh, well, I played many many strong tournaments, uh, and it it is a blessing as well because now you know you can plan and fun and everything. Yes, back in Iran, it was all uh, 
federation funded. So I, I, had, I didn't have to pay for anything. That was good. But then again, I couldn't control where I want to play. I could get a tournament in summer, whichever I could uh, lock in as soon as possible because there was so much bureaucracy. So it would take me three months of prep to go one tournament or two tournaments. Here, no, I think I just can get on a plane. Just you plan, you can plan yourself everything. I understand. Yeah, I, it, there's also this, the setback is I have to pay for it, all of that. But again, there are all cons and pros, you know. This, for me, it was I never had enough chance to play as much as I wanted. So it felt great. I played twice in Continental. Uh, one was online in 2021, which I qualified to the World Cup. I, right. the, I played, I, and that was the second time I qualified for the World Cup. And this time, I didn't get a seat. Somebody didn't play. And because last time I played in 2011, I got a seat because someone else didn't make it. But this time, I got a seat because... Uh, I qualified myself, so it was, felt great. I played Continental twice, played, made it to the U.S. Championship. U.S. Open is always great to be there. I, I only have played it well once, but still, it feels good. I qualified once and won an Armageddon match there. There are, there are classic tournaments at, at St. Louis, which I think is the perfect event I've ever played, and I haven't done as, as good, and I'm waiting to go back and win it once, but, but just the chance is fantastic. I would like to thank St. Louis Chess Club for this, these events because it feels good. To be there, you know, playing a tournament. So it, it feels great. I just think that because I love chess, I still ha can have some success because uh, I still, when I'm at the board, I feel like a 20 year old boy. Let's talk a little bit about the uh, the, the Spring Classic. That you, I think that was your, your most recent event. Um, and uh, so for those who are not familiar with the series, uh, the St. Louis Chess Club puts on quarterly or sort of seasonal round robins. Um, so a, a spring, a summer, a fall, and a winter usually. And they'll have either one or two round-robin events um, with players of, of, generally speaking, you know, something within like a 100-point rating of each other. So a, a, a usually a, a, a pretty strong tournaments. Um, this was the first one, I think, since COVID. Since pandemic, yeah. The um, last 19. The, the winter, uh, fall 19 was the last one before this. And uh, I I, uh, I happened to stop by um, on my way back from Crossville after uh, going to to help sort through the library in Crossville, and uh, it, it was amazing. It was amazing to see high level chess being played at the club again, and and uh, you know it, it also kind of felt like a homecoming in some ways because everybody everybody knows each other. Everybody's sort of house, you know, they're from St. Louis or they're they've been there before. Uh, they, they, they have, they have friends at the club and, and it, it, it felt amazing to be there. Um, what, what was it like to be playing and, and to be back at that board again? And, and, and as you say, in the article you did for chess life online, doing battle with, with all those young up and comers. <laughs> yeah, it felt great. I mean, I cannot say, I, I cannot deny that I was a bit disappointed with my result because I had so many good positions, which I let go. And uh, it's on me. I mean, you have not to be rusty when you go to such tournaments. And I, I was rusty. So, uh, and when you're rusty, you don't have enough confidence. And when you don't have enough confidence, you get into time pressure and you, you blunder in good positions. Uh, uh, but that being said, uh, it, it felt great. You know, just when I look back, uh, the chance of playing all these entertaining games and uh, 
and uh, all the moments. And again, it's a lesson. You go forward, you see that, oh, you've, I've done all these things and it's, it's cool. So, uh, yeah, I mean, sitting at the board is, feels good. Next tournament I'm playing is called Alto, at least 21. So I'm playing, I'm, I'm playing veterans. I'm, I'm being a veteran among veterans. And I, I, checked, I checked the list and they're like, in my, in my group, they're like, it's, it will be played in Charlotte. There are like 12 or 14 players. I'm still like the fourth, fourth oldest guy out of the 14 players, above 21. So I'm getting there, John. I'm getting there. I'm, I'm, I'm really a veteran. And uh, only older than me are, are the other GMs, actually. There's GM Magesh and, uh, and uh, Ben Feingold. These are the only guys who are older than me. So I'm older than everybody else in the group. See now you're you're at least like I think you're like eight years younger than me, so um, I'm getting a little annoyed with this veteran stuff there, Elshan. Because uh, if, if you're a veteran, I don't even want to think about what I am. But uh, I, I think it's a new it's a new normal, and we have to accept it. We, we, that's it. We got to. Uh, I mean, it's better than the alternative, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I wanted to talk about your book because uh, did it did, was it last year? Did I mean, is it possible that it was just last year? <laughs> It came up, I think, late 2020, actually. Okay. So uh, you you co-wrote this book with WGM Sabina Foyser called Sherlock's Method. Uh-huh. Um, and yeah, I've got the book sitting right here. Um, really nice book, fun cover, great problems. But the thing I like most about it is the way that you used a certain character from literary history to to try to to try to do some teaching, to try to drop some knowledge. Um, what is Sherlock's method and, and what should readers expect when they, when they pick it up? So here it goes. So we were talking with Sabina about, uh, writing the book together. And the idea was to be a, to be an exercise book in a fun fashion. And, uh, because I was collecting all these positions, she was collecting her own positions. So we had like thousands of positions, new ones, like from recent years. There are also some classical, classic positions, uh, in the book as well, uh, but mostly from recent, like the past 10 years. So, and we wanted it to be a training for player who wants to go to a tournament, because that's what we felt like we would, we are close to a tournament a month ago. And it seems that there is no exact path from going like, I'm not, I'm rusty at tactics. And I want, by the end of the month, I want to be a, this tactical guru who can do, do things so well. So you start doing easy tactics at first and suddenly you just do overdoing it or not doing it enough. So either the warm-up doesn't go well and then once you do to the serious problems, you kind of screw up your time because you haven't done enough of that. So we're thinking, what's the enough amount of all of this? So what's the, what's the you have to do some basic training, you need some end-game training, and then you need to just do this advanced calculation and then you're ready to go to a tournament. And this phase, this process, we always felt that there's not enough balance. So we thought, okay, how can we create a balance for others at least? Now we know where the problem is. So, and here we are. And why Sherlock? Because I started, I started, started studying English uh, because of the love for Sherlock Holmes series. So that's how we started studying English. I was preparing for my uh, GRE and GMAT and um, TOEFL and all of that. And uh, I also I don't know what was, which ones all there are all these different exams. So I it, it took off the, like that. So I started reading Sherlock Holmes, watching the series. It's a British one actually. And uh, so I said, can I write this? Can I write the story through Sherlock Holmes? And she said, fine, yeah, but we do it this way. So we had our discussions, setting the 
ground rules, what what I do, what she does, and then we merged it. It is um it's a really good book. I um I, I've been dipping in and out and uh the 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 way that you use Sherlock is enjoyable. The problems are um some of them are solvable for me, others are not. <laughs> that's yeah and that's okay. Um yeah. But uh, yeah, I think anybody who is looking for something a little different in the chess literature world uh, should maybe check it out. Um, let me ask you a couple more things, then I want to I want to wrap up because I know you're a busy guy and uh, you got a, you got more teaching to do today. Um, but I, I wanted to talk to you about your coaching because you you are a professional coach and trainer, and you work with players from you know beginners uh, through some of the country's best. Why? Why are you so in demand for your services? What what makes you a good coach? Um, I think. Well, thank you for saying that. For, I, I I would like to think I'm a good coach because I really care about my coaching. And when I work with the top players, it's more of sparring. You know, you kind of help them in their training, keep them in shape, and it also helps you as well too. But really, there's nothing that you can teach them. It's more than you put your time and and organize things and you know giving a big picture of things but then i still have a good understanding of almost everything every opening in chess and uh, i mean i think any gm at my age who has done classic training has has that as well or or older so basically that's what i do uh but uh still i think that classic knowledge kind of helps you to come up with new ideas and openings as well but speaking about this uh, broadness and range of work and uh, i would love to think I'm actually a good coach. I think the key is that I care. I think that's the very first thing in, in my teaching philosophy. When I'm there or when I'm training with someone, I really care. I really think that that person should become a better player. If they have a question, they, they send it back to me. I may not like sitting systematically thinking about it, but I will spend time coming up with a plan that this person needs to get this thing done to get to this point from point A to point B. And I think that's the he, at least in the past few years with my student success, I would say, I really care about my students. And that's saying that other coaches, they don't care. What I'm saying is that uh, I am involved in their progress. It's not just I am presenting them with, because you know, some people may be better, better uh, than me at presenting something. And I, I mean, I, I, sometimes my English makes sense to some people. It doesn't make sense to others. I can understand that as well. But I think that that is the the key that I, like i walk with them doesn't matter what their level is the same way we go through the knowledge so when i show enthusiasm that oh this is interesting they also feel it's interesting to learn it and it doesn't matter if it's a 1200 uh, students or a beginner or a 1700 or a 2200 so i think uh that's the key part and the other part is that i i i now have a method because the way i was also part of explaining sherlock I go with evaluation, calculation. I have a set set uh, set, uh, set of um, positions and a set of steps for them, and everyone walks through it. Doesn't matter what their level is. I mean, not gyms, of course, but everyone below that walks through this, and uh, it works for for them because it kind of makes them understand me, and I, they, uh, and then I can understand their thinking because I keep pushing them to think in a certain way without the, losing their creativity because it all comes down to asking the questions. So uh, I think these are the two key concepts in my teaching philosophy. One is that my training method and second, I mean, first first and foremost, I care, like I, I get involved in their training 
And number two is that uh, is my training method because they walk through something systematic. Right. You've one of the things that I've been really impressed with when I when I talk to you about some of the things you've written for Chess Life or some of the things you you may write in the future. Um, and, and we talked about this briefly at the top. Is is your knowledge of the classics? I mean, you know, whenever whenever you're you're, you're saying, oh, this this was interesting. There's an analog in some Botvinnik game from you know 1949 or something, and, and I'm just I'm floored because um, I I just can't remember that. I, I suspect that's probably common for for those of us who are not professionals like you. Um, but it seems like knowledge of the classics is something that is less important to younger players. Do, do you notice like a generational thing there? Is is it common for for let's say players your age and above to to have this knowledge of the classics and 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 is it less common for the younger ones? Um, that's definitely true. The this, 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 this second part that the younger generation has less interest in the classics because they just want the good moves and they, they study with the engine, go back and forth. So if I see different lines, if if this is better compared to the other one, because back in the time we didn't have the luxury of uh, embracing all. All of the lines, right? Because we didn't have good enough engines or or hardware to to do it. Now everyone can have it. Like my, I have an eleven year old who has uh, who has a good computer, and I just give him. This, these are the ideas. He goes, he checks, comes back. If you print the analysis, like 50, 50 pages. So eleven year old can do it on his own. If if he is willing to, he can do it. So he has the means to to go to that part. part. So. The classics was important to get an idea that these deep thinkers, these philosophers of chess, what were they thinking about? And you can either challenge it or accept it or form it the way you understand it. Like I, I always, uh, I, I was always having problem understanding some of the concepts in Kasparov's uh, uh, Sicilians, and uh, spent spent uh, years studying them. And now, when I think about Sicilian, all the Kasparov's classics comes to my mind when I because I had to do that because he's a, he was the greatest Sicilian player maybe of this point of all time. Maybe his knowledge is not part of what top players have these days, but the way he had approached uh, Sicilian revolutionized our approach to the opening. So, and and there are like lines in Sicilian, like for example. Uh, in Paulson, nowadays nobody plays them because engine just goes crazy. Plus one for white for move six, so nobody even look at it in Paulson E6 A6 system. But we we didn't know that, so we had to go through. And then I even go, went back all the way to Sultan Khan, who was playing it in a very naive way. But knight comes to C6, takes the knight on D5. The other knight goes to C6. It makes sense because I have less space, and also I'm keeping my pawns back. So you see, that's kind of the thinking process. Um, I think yeah, that that makes made us very interested in in that kind of conceptual thinking because we didn't have the means. Is is anything lost when when players are so concrete and 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 just sort of you know learning by I mean basically by by just sort of sparring with stockfish for lack of a better word? Yeah, evaluation. My a lot of times my students have advantage; they don't realize it. So that's what the first thing and the second thing and the third thing I teach my students. And I go that for a long time is evaluation, because if they don't understand what's happening on the board, again, they can ask ask the right questions. They just are being fed fish. They don't know how to fish. Got it. 
that's that's what's missing. Yeah, that's why classes are important because you have to be able to evaluate. Um, one more question about your 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 teaching because you just had a really, I think a really interesting experience. Um, you had a coaching session with some young Afghan refugees in North Carolina just yesterday or the day before, right? It uh, was yesterday. Wow. Um, so, so talk about that a little bit. I mean, h- how did it get set up? Um, because I know you were, you, you, it's the, the story said you taught them in Farsi. Were they, yeah. were they able to understand? Cause I know there's some linguistic differences. Y- yes. So, um, USCF, uh, CEO, uh, Cal Myers, she, uh, she was in touch with the, with the school through mm-hmm. her neighbor. So it was very random. And then she said, oh, we actually, ha- we have this. Do you want to take part? I was like, yeah, education is, is something I love to do. And I love to do. And if these kids really, because they said they, are lim- they have limited knowledge of English. So it would make them feel good that if someone speaks to them in Farsi. And I told them that the dialect difference is big. It's not like if you're having some British speaking to an American, it's not like that. It's a very different, it's very different. But we tried. Um, and uh, I think these kids need more help, so I will try to f- to to open some time in my schedule and uh, to leave some time to, to go there and meet them in person. So, because I had many classes lined up, I had to do it online. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they need that, and they actually, I actually need some education in Farsi to understand the differences and and uh, ex- be ex- have had it explained to them. But what was big is that they were enthusiastic; they were having fun. So. Uh, yeah, I should I should do that probably go to do it in person, but it was not easy in Farsi for them because the words I was using was probably you know um, I am I am speaking the Farsi of a guy who left Iran at the age of twenty seven, and I uh, I speak a language of an educated man who went to a very good college, learned in Farsi, and who studied uh, Persian literature I mean Farsi and Persian literature deeply. I mean not only that I liked it, but also you know, I had education, so my knowledge, my grasp of grammar, everything was different. So when I was talking, I could tell for the kids who are like less than 10 years old and probably uh, been out of the country for at least quite some time, they, they didn't have that knowledge. So I kind of have to really simplify it for future. So if I go to see them, I have to come up with something a little bit simpler. Not only dialect difference, but dialect, dialect difference, but also the fact that I speak a more advanced Farsi. It makes sense. I mean, I probably can speak to a older Afghan person because they will understand me probably for the most part. But with kids, it's going to be much more difficult. But it's a challenge. It's a fun challenge. Yeah. But, it's, uh, um, it, it, was, it was great to read the news story. Um, if you haven't seen it and you're listening to this, uh, we retweeted it on uh, US Chess Twitter and Facebook and, and LinkedIn if you're on LinkedIn. Because apparently we're on LinkedIn. I had no idea. <laughs> oh, I, wow. Okay. I'll, um, I'll make sure to follow. There you go. Um, but yeah, I, I, th- I thought it was... In this day and age, when so many people are displaced all over the world, um, I, I thought it was really nice to see that you were able to take some time and, and work with these kids. And um, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you might be able to do some more because it's uh, it's important. It's it's important. I mean, these kids. I mean, Taliban banned chess now, and yeah. uh, I don't know. God knows. Probably next thing is this, they go start butchering people for uh, for playing chess, like cutting their hands or something. Uh, so. They they need this. I mean, it's 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 uh, it's a basic human common sense and basic humanity. I mean, just the I could be very much in the same place if if 
if it, if maybe Khomeini was still alive or something. I don't know. I could, yeah. I could maybe never learn to play. If I were born two years younger, maybe I couldn't have had as much chance because like I would be like 10 years old instead of eight and there was no chess going on anyways. And then it would never, it would never, you know, pan out. Yeah. It would have never panned out. Yeah. So deep thoughts, deep thoughts on this Saturday morning. Yeah. Um, speaking of deep thoughts, Elshana, I, uh, I always end, I always end these interviews with Super. a series of 10 questions uh -huh. um, that um, I don't know if you ever saw the show Inside the Actors Studio. It may have been before you came to the States. I'm not sure. Probably, probably not because no, I have not. I, okay. So uh, th there was a man, James Lipton, who would interview actors and actresses uh, at his, at, at some, some theater school. Um, and he would ask 10 questions and, and they were based on questions uh, from Bernard Pivot in France, uh -huh. who originally based his questions on on, on some by Marcel Proust. Uh -huh. So I've taken Lipton's list uh, and made it a little podcast friendly. Okay. And so I'm going to go through these, and all you have to do uh, when you ask, when when you hear the question, just answer the first thing that comes to mind. Don't overthink it. Okay. Um, we're trying to plumb your psyche, Elshan. Okay. All right. <laughs> all right. First question: What is your favorite word? Favorite word. In, uh, favorite word in English. It, it could be in Farsi too. Uh, ethos. 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 Yes. Why? Well, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's the word I learned in the Big Lebowski. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and, and actually it's, I like, I like Greek words that we use in English. I think it's very, it's very culturally driven. It, it, it makes me feel good. It makes me feel intellectually aware of things around me. So ethos. There you go. Yeah, I like that. What What's your least favorite word? I cannot say it. Yes, we're, we're keeping it clean for the kids. Okay. Um, what is your dream of happiness? Uh, dream of happiness, being in harmony. Uh, Epicurean is I don't know how uh, Epicure is it is is Epicurean? Yes, yeah. yes, that Epicurean uh, happiness. That's the kind of that's the kind of to be in peace and harmony with my environment. Which is interesting because most people, uh, when they think of Epicurus, they think of sort of hedonism, but that's not what Epicurus was talking about. No, that's not what he was talking about. No. That's this is a man who knows his stuff. <laughs> towards what mo uh, tor towards which faults, Alshan, do you feel most indulgent in a person? Faults meaning can you a little bit elaborate on that? Maybe I'm not. Um, wh which bad traits are you most traits. willing to overlook? Right. Okay. Um, bad traits. Uh, lying under pressure. Mm. I can I can forgive that. Okay. Because sometimes you say things, but you're under pressure, and you're saying it, but you really don't mean it. And then uh, I I can yeah I can get over that because I can understand that you know under pressure people can say things. Right. Who would you like to see on a new banknote? Uh, on the new banknote, U.S. banknote could be any banknote. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. That is a, uh, I think, a choice most of us could get behind. Um, Elshan, what opening do you love? Well, uh, what uh, before I answer you the previous question. 
I was yeah. thinking of a woman as well too, but uh, I couldn't choose. But I think when, when I was thinking for uh, for 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 a civil rights activist, it was an easy choice. So yes. that was the thing. So it wasn't easy to choose a woman, but it was easy to choose a civil rights activist. Got it. That makes sense. Okay. All right. Now that you've stalled on the opening question. So uh, okay. <laughs> so my open, my my least favorite or my most favorite. Your favorite. I may ask you about your least favorite next. Okay. My favorite opening um, uh, from white side or black side to face. Either. I wish I could answer this question. I cannot tell, really. Okay. Uh, well, then maybe it's it's easier to tell us which opening you hate. Uh, Kirk Defense from black side. Kirk, Kirk Defense? Why? It's just... White goes at four angles, you don't have a space, and there are all these forced lines that you have to walk through. So uh, you just already are, are deeming yourself into some bad position without really having enough ground to, to discuss. So that's my least favorite here. But, but favorite, it's very hard to say. It always comes, because I put everything with white, I put everything with black as well, so I, it's hard to have a favorite. But Okay. Well, now, now we know we'll never see you on the black side of an Austrian attack. All right. Yeah. Um, what profession other than, you own, other than your own would you like to attempt? Uh, wish I could become an author or, or, or an actor. Okay. What, what profession would you not like to do? Politician. Popular choice these days. Last question, Grandmaster Elshan Muradi Abadi. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? I God lets me into heaven, then I'm gonna I'm gonna question his choices because <laughs> 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 no, my jokes aside, um uh what he would say. Just, uh, just uh, rest well. Okay. That's Epicur- Epicurean too, huh? Kind of. Very, yeah. I like that. Consistent. Uh-huh. Elshan, if people want to reach out to you for coaching or uh, just to say hi, um, where should they do that? What's, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Um, my email is a very good place because I always check my email. So it's Elsh is my First name, Elshan, dot last name, Muradibadi at gmail.com. Okay. And uh, and uh, LinkedIn, I'll also check. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter. Okay. So we've got an email, we've got LinkedIn, we've got Twitter. Perfect. All right. Yep. Well, Elshan, um, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. And I, I expect uh, people will be interested to hear what you have had to say. So... Uh, thank you very much for your time, and uh, thanks for your writing for Chess Life, and we're looking forward to more of it. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this edition of Cover Stories with Chess Life. Our podcast will return next month on the first Tuesday, when we will again be making a deep dive into the pages of Chess Life magazine. U.S. Chess is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose educational mission is to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. To become a member, go to uschess.org and click on the Join button, where you can find a membership option that is right for you. As a member, you enjoy rated play, print and digital copies of Chess Life or Chess Life Kids, and you help U.S. Chess grow the game. 
If you're already a member, consider clicking on the donate button at uschess.org. Our podcasts are produced and edited by Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media. Please visit sevenseasonfilms.com to find out how to start your own podcast. Thank you and good chess. <laughs>